0: Stories told of a couple of boys who were once discovered throwing stones at a church, and the pastor caught one of them. And a frog marched in into his office, sat him down, and said, "Where is God?" And the boy was silent. So the pastor asked again, "Where is God?" And there was no answer. So the pastor asked the 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 boy a third time, and this time the boy got up, rushed out of his office. all the way to his friend's home, up into his friend's bedroom, and he said, he said we're in big trouble. God's missing and they think we did it. <laughs> well, w- what we're going to see this morning is that, is that actually that boy came to the right conclusion for the wrong reason. He was uh, more right than he knew, perhaps, when he said we're in big trouble. We're going to see that. But it wasn't because God was missing, it's because God is here. So we've been looking, haven't we, at the message of uh, the whole Bible and particularly what it says about the church, I've already said that. I've tried to produce something a little bit pictorial to, to, uh, the, to get the message that we've, be, we've been building in your mind so far. That might help those who are more visually um, Um, uh, stimulated. The essence of what I've been saying is that actually the church now, the local church, communities of believers gathering like this, are communities on the brink of eternity, on the brink of the new creation. One day God will recreate his whole universe, resurrect all his people, and, uh, and remake the universe in the way that it was supposed to. To be, And in the meantime, the central place where we see that being worked out in anticipation is here. In the church. Not perfectly, but the Bible says here is where um, God is beginning that great work of recreation. We saw that uh, the story of the Bible actually begins at creation with Adam and Eve. They were created in God's image, and God reveals himself as relational, so they were were created relational, male and female, to relate together. And we saw that Adam and Eve sinned, all their relationships were were broken, and God set, set out to restore the image of God in human beings, in particular we focused on their their relationships and we saw in ephesians chapter 2 that actually here is the central place where god is restoring people's relationships as um uh, uh ephesians 2 says sorry if i missed it his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity okay the second week we uh, we, we um, followed the story in Genesis to Abraham and we saw that Abraham received the whole series of promises which we summarised under those four headings of land, innumerable offspring, enjoying the presence of God um, and this blessing was to spread out to all nations and we saw, I hope... Um, uh, even if you got lost in some of the details, I hope you saw the big picture. Actually, the central way in which that is being fulfilled is not in the not in the recreation of a physical um, nation um, uh, dwelling in the promised land. The central way in which that is is fulfilled again is here. So the promise of land in the Old Testament becomes becomes the promise that we that this is home in a sense. The promise of innumerable offspring in eternity will be um, fulfilled completely and here is where people are added to that number. The promise of enjoying God's presence is here as God says he will dwell especially amongst his people when they gather. And the promise of that blessing going to all nations is happening here, as all kinds of people from all kinds of background find themselves united in one identity. They are people who have faith in Jesus Christ. This is the place where those promises to Abraham begin to be fulfilled. But uh, the story of Abraham actually uh, doesn't go entirely smoothly, um, though he lives in the Promised Land and doesn't own it. By the end of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel now are in exile in Egypt. Then in the book of Exodus, we read about them being delivered um, from slavery in Egypt and receiving the law down there in the, in the desert in, uh, in Mount Sinai. And then um, They uh, wander in the desert for a whole generation, and that's uh, described in Leviticus and Numbers, until at the end of that time they receive the law again. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And uh, so that's where we have got to in our message there. Not yet in the story of Israel, even back in the first promised land, let alone seeing uh all the things that we've seen, they are waiting to go into the promised land. And um, as Moses delivers the law then, for this second time in an expanded way, just before they enter the promised land, the big question is, okay, how are the promises to Abraham going to be fulfilled? And um, the answer is very dramatic in Deuteronomy. The answer is, hang on! Stop! To echo those small boys, if you think about it, we're in big trouble. That's what we need to see today. What we need to understand. Deuteronomy sets out to warn us of something really, really important. Obedience is essential. First of all, we saw in that reading in Deuteronomy chapter 4, that obedience is essential if the promises to Abraham are to be fulfilled, for the nations to um, be blessed. Deuteronomy 4 verse 5, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In other words, if Israel lived, as they are called to live, then the nations will be blessed. That's what Deuteronomy is saying. But the problem is, there is a big if. If they are obedient, those things will come true. And as the book of Deuteronomy says, goes on, it becomes progressively more and more clear that actually God asks that every area of life be lived in obedience to him. From what they eat, to who they marry, to details of daily life. More disconcertingly than that though, there is um, a phrase that starts to appear again and again and again in Deuteronomy. It is, purge the evil from among you. And when you read that in context, you realise that means the death penalty. Now, immediately, frankly, and rightly, in many senses, we think to ourselves, well, that's, that's typical of Old Testament morality, the Old Testament uh, system. It doesn't apply to us. It couldn't apply to us. And um, whilst I, um, uh, uh, we'll see in a moment, in, in many ways, it doesn't apply to us, before we airbrush it out completely, we need to notice something very, very important the New Testament actually quotes that phrase in a very important context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, though I put up some of the key verses there, it might be worth you just having that in front of you so that you can have a look. 1 Corinthians 5 is on page 1146. So before we dismiss that ominous phrase, we need to understand how the New Testament uses it and how particularly the New Testament uses it for local churches. The context is this. In um, the city of Corinth, there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. Presumably it was not his mother, it was his stepmother, the way that Paul describes it. But um, uh, by any account, that was incest, and he was even boasting about it. Apparently, as a mark of the freedom that he had from those oppressive Old Testament regulations, he was he was under grace. He was free. This man, and the the, the Apostle Paul says. Actually, in certain key respects, and this is what we need to see, Old Testament morality is is still very relevant. Now, unlike Deuteronomy, when Paul uses that phrase, expel the wicked man from among you, he's not talking about executing someone. That is one of the significant changes from Old Testament to New Testament. In the New Testament it's made very plain that the, the, the state, the government, has the role of bearing the sword, as, uh, uh, as it puts it, um, has, has the right to coerce people one way or another, and the church does not. It is not now a nation state, unlike, unlike Israel, and it should not behave as if it was. But... That phrase is not used for execution, it's used for what Christians call excommunication, for saying to a person, no, you cannot function within this church community pretending that you're a Christian if you behave like that. Notice, though, also, that this, sin that is being described in 1 Corinthians 5 is a gross sin. It is a serious and obvious sin. The Bible is absolutely clear that everybody sins every day and needs God's forgiveness every day, but um, sanctions like this are not for those for those normal sins. This is a serious That sin, says Paul on it, and serious sin of this kind needs to be confronted. Notice too, when um, if you read down through uh, uh, through one Corinthians five, this is a sin that has not been repented of. That's really, really important. Jesus taught, for instance, we must forgive sin seventy times seven if a person repents. There is a massive difference, say, between a a young woman who is a a sex addict who repeatedly ends up in the bed of uh, strangers but who sincerely weeps over her sin and on the other hand an adulterer who is not penitent at all. The former person should be. Welcomed, embraced, forgiven in a, in, a, in a healthy church. Even if she comes, not really being confident that she won't stumble again the next day. If she wants to follow Christ and she's sincere about it, she is welcome. But the person who, with, as the Bible puts it, with a high hand, has fallen into some gross sin and has no intention of doing anything about it. That's the person that 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about. Notice too, then, the sin is not only gross and, un- uh, and not repented of, it is public, it is very public. That's one of the big issues um, that the Apostle... Um, Um, uh, uh, alludes to um, uh, for instance he says in verse 2 you are proud of this person it's clearly something that he has done in public that the whole church and presumably the wider society knows about there is a general pattern in scripture that you deal with sin with with the same degree of openness that the sin itself is committed in so if it is a private sin that nobody nobody else or very few know about, there is no there is no reason to make it more public. It can be dealt with privately. But if it's a public sin that lots of people know about, then actually the wider church and the world that has seen it happening needs also to see how it's dealt with by a healthy church. In than Road, really, thank the Lord, nearly every difficulty that people have, one way or another is dealt with, either completely privately or relatively privately. Just occasionally that's not appropriate, as in this case. And notice as well, um, as uh, Paul puts it rather vividly in, uh, in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5. Notice that it, it is to induce repentance. It's not to sort of cast some final verdict on a person and cast them off without a hope. It's rather the opposite. Paul puts it very, very vividly, so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, it's so that someone actually is woken up to the fact that they cannot behave as they are and think that they are safe with God. The end is always so that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. We do people a great disservice by trying to assure them that all is well if actually the sin that they are indulging in is not repented of and they have no intention of doing so. Now, I'm acutely aware But even with all those qualifications the sin is gross, the sin is unrepented of, the sin is public and the the dealing with the sin is in order to bring the person back. I am acutely aware that it is is exactly things like this passages like this that make people say well church involvement is not for me. I'll, I'll come and hear the sermons, I'll enjoy the singing and so on but I am not getting involved with a community that, te- that treats people like that. And I, I want to say to you, actually, think again. I, I know that these uh, passages like this can be used to justify oppressive and, and, and uh, authoritarian behaviour. I know, and I know that that happens sometimes in local churches. But I want to say to you, Imagine a world where you can just drift in and out of relationships. Imagine that you can just seamlessly um, move through and move, move away from communities that you don't like with no pain and no consequences. Do you really think you'll be better off? For me... I need people to hold me accountable. I need wise and godly people who will say to me, don't go there. I need to be bound into a faithful community. Not not just of friends, they don't always provide the best wisdom. But the community that God has ordained the local church. Frankly, I notice that our world is full of Christians who wander into all sorts of trouble and difficulty and get themselves into all sorts of mess and misery. In part at least, because they never did become rooted in a local community which 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 held them and looked after them and cared for them and held them accountable if necessary. If, if you're on the periphery of this church or visiting of, a, of whatever church you're uh, you're most linked to, if you are on the periphery of that church, then let me say you, you you are in a dangerous place. It may feel free right now, but actually it's a lifestyle that could easily lead you into real trouble. Tell your story of how this worked. It's a, uh, it's a pastor actually, who I know slightly, who became um, uh, secretly addicted to painkillers. His addiction got really bad. He even stole from church members in order to feed that addiction. And uh, Finally he was found out and uh, he had to resign his pastorate. But he saw what he had done was wrong. He confessed it to the church, and he, he 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 went to the church, confessed his sin, as expecting to need to leave. The church said no. The church said no. Well, you can't be our pastor still at the moment. that, that that's that's not open to you. But but you belong here. You belong amongst us. You're not just our pastor, you are our brother and we love you and we want to care for you. And, and three years later now, he's, he's still recovering, but he's overwhelmingly grateful for that church. We must be held accountable. A healthy church will do that and love the person as well. I could tell you other stories, I could tell you a story of, of, of people who, who have had to leave their local church because others need the space to, be, uh, to, to recover and for their wounds to heal as a result of that person's sin. But that person has been carefully and lovingly placed in a new environment where they can thrive and, and grow. We're not the only church and there may be another local fellowship where, that, where a person can thrive. I could also tell you, and sadly this is very common, I could also tell you stories of people who just leave in a huff and manage to find a church that they can settle into that uh, is not aware of their history. And sooner or later their history catches up with them and they repeat the same things again. Obedience is essential, and local church is the place that holds us. And I praise God that Moreland Road is like that. Um, We're not perfect. But you don't do too badly in home groups, in relationships together. Just occasionally things have to come to the elders. You do alright. Obedience is essential then, says Deuteronomy. But grace is essential. Now let, now, let, let, me, um, um, let me try and explain that. Because uh, the way that Deuteronomy unfolds that is really, really important and we'll get in a moment to the passage that uh, James read to us. Deuteronomy, as the book unfolds, actually gets darker and darker, frankly. The number of uh, thing, ways in which Israel has to be obedient gets bigger and bigger, and then towards the end, Moses stands before them, and he says, frankly, I know you're not going to keep this law. Frankly, I know that although we're just about to enter the promised land, you're not going to stay there long, you will be vomited out by the land, as he he puts it. Because you can't keep this. Gets to a low point in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, where All the people have to say this. Cursed is the person who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. All the people shall say, Amen, it says. In other words, any disobedience towards any law in Deuteronomy results in a person being cursed. That's the conclusion that Deuteronomy has. And uh, it is designed, I think, for people to say, how then can anyone be saved? Perhaps you've been thinking that as, you've, uh, uh, as I've just explored some of, the, some of these things. And that's where this New Testament passage in Galatians comes in, uh, becomes very, very important. Turn, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, on page 1170. Verse 10 is important. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. He's quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26 there that I've just mentioned. Okay, So Paul is saying, anyone who thinks that they will get right with God and stay right with God by obedience to the law has got a problem if they, they should read Deuteronomy and they'd see the problem. Everybody's under a curse. Hence, verses 13 and 14 are really important. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It's another quote from Deuteronomy. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there's someone else who took the curse on himself. It is Jesus. That is the the very substructure of uh, the whole message of the Bible. And Jesus did that for a specific reason. Did you notice? Not only so that you could be forgiven, but so that the promises to Abraham could true. To go back to that picture again, we have this problem. Everything seems to be going swimmingly until the law comes along and says, stop! What about the requirement for obedience? And although in the New Testament the requirement for obedience has not gone, as I hope I've shown you, the deep and ultimate problem that Deuteronomy points to is resolved through the cross. Christ took the curse on himself. The curse that was on every single one of us because not a single one of us could properly obey God so that the story could be completed so that what God set out to do in the Garden of Eden, what he promised to Abraham he would do, could come true. First in the church, finally in the new creation. So grace is essential, isn't it? Proclaiming the grace of Jesus, the cross of Jesus who died for our sins. Appropriating that offer that is there in the cross. Seeking the forgiveness that only Jesus could win us is absolutely central if we are to be people who could call ourselves Christians. Only then will any of us here be okay with God. And all of that happens most centrally here, says the Bible. I don't know what state you are in right now. There will be people here who are not yet Christians, not yet followers of Jesus. If that is you, can you see why Jesus and his death on the cross is so central? It becomes the cornerstone of the whole of history. Because Christ took that curse on himself. All you have to do is ask for the forgiveness that Jesus won. And set out under that covering of forgiveness to follow him. Not perfectly, but as best you can. And there will be the majority of us here who have started on that path. And I want to say to you, keep going, and I want to say to you, the church is the place which will enable you to keep going. Enable you to keep walking in obedience. Enable you again and again and again to see Jesus, to know his forgiveness. There's a story told, which is very appropriate as we approach communion in just a, a moment. Story told about a church of Scotland a minister, a very godly man, who was uh, presiding over the communion table. And there was a young girl who, who was clearly hesitant about taking the bread and the wine. And um, she very hesitantly came up to the table. And he saw she was hesitating and he uh, leant forward and whispered in her ear, he said take it Lassie, it's for sinners like us. That's the only thing that qualifies us to be here. We are sinners who have acknowledged our sin and set out to follow Jesus bread and the wine we'll take in just a moment just to strengthen us in that resolve.